Grants administration is where the rubber meets the road. The systems, process, and tools that the organization decides to implement have a role in conveying the organization's values. We, the grants managers, help move these lofty organizational ideas from intent to action. Hi, and welcome to season two of Impact Audio, the show focused almost obsessively on philanthropy, nonprofits, corporate citizenship, and social change. I'm producer Rachel Mendel. Today, we're putting the spotlight on grants managers. And who better to talk about the role than two grants managers themselves? Rachel Kimber and Adam Liebling joined Sam Kaplan, Submittable's VP of Social Impact, to discuss where the field of grants management has come from, where it's heading, and why we should be collectively swiping right on smarter philanthropy tech. We're so glad you're here. If you haven't already, please take a sec to subscribe at submittable.com slash impact dash audio. It's free and we'll send you some cool stuff. And now a little more about our guests. For more than 15 years, Rachel Kimber has led and contributed to the philanthropic sector through her commitment to grant making that is human-centered, data-driven, and technology-supported. She is advancing the implementation of emergent philanthropic practices around equity and technological innovations. Since 2015, Rachel has served as grants manager at the Arcus Foundation, overseeing an international portfolio of LGBTQ rights and APE conservation grantees spanning from Indonesia to Mexico. Adam Liebling has over 20 years of grants management and philanthropy experience, having worked at Carnegie Corporation of New York, the ASPCA, American Jewish World Service, and now at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where he oversees a staff of 15 and the grant operations of a $700 million annual portfolio. We're excited for you to listen in. Enjoy. So today we're going to talk with Rachel Kimber and Adam Liebling, two of philanthropy's most talented and prominent grants managers, about their work and how they and their colleagues are redefining the role of grants management within philanthropy. So why don't we just get started with a short sort of like introduction for each of you. So Rachel, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of what brought you to the world of grants management? Sure. Um, I've always been a passionate, uh, eccentric, um, and a bit of a nerd. (laughs) I enjoy being an extrovert at the center of a brainstorming session as much as I love spending hours reading and writing at the computer. So my career journey in philanthropy started at a small family foundation where I wore many hats. And when it was time to move on, I reflected on the different specialist roles I had played and which one I might want to step into in my next role. And I chose grants management over becoming a program officer or an office manager, or back office IT. Being a grants manager is being a stage manager. We're everywhere, buttressing everyone. As my colleague Monica Charles likes to say, we keep the trains on the tracks and on time. (laughs) Yeah. And I have to tell you, I so much appreciate and love hearing you say that out of a variety of roles that you could have gone into in philanthropy that you intentionally chose grants management. Um, Adam Liebling, how about you? What, What brought you into grants management? Well, you know, so Rachel is uh, very lucky that she got to choose to be in grants management. Uh, Like most of our colleagues, I fell into it. I was 20 years old. I was temping as an accounts payable clerk 
And amazingly, I got placed by the agency at uh, the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And one thing led to another, and I ended up as their grants assistant, and then over the years got promoted. And, you know, the rest is history. Uh, grants management is really, um, it's this wonderful little niche that most people don't know about. And it's, unfortunately, it is hard to get into because a lot of people don't know about it, but I hope that that will change with time. So... For those in our listening audience who may not be familiar with the role of grants management, give us a little bit of an overview. Like what is what does a grants manager do and why is this an important role at a foundation or, or any grant making organization? That's a great question, Sam. Um, I think for me, the, the heart and soul of what grants management is, is the life cycle of the grant. And I think that's a, a really simplified way to look at what starts as a initial concept proposal application, and then moving through to payment and reporting. And so I think that's the, the nut of grants management that from that core reaches out and touches all departments at a donor organization. Yeah. Adam, I want to quote you, and in looking at our, our meeting notes, you wrote something that I just love. You said in regards to grants management that we need to know law, IRS regulations, finance, accounting, bookkeeping, knowledge management, change management, project management, staff management, program development, board relations, communications, the list goes on and on. So <laughs> that sounds like a pretty impossible task. Yeah, you know, grants managers have to be a jack or jill of all trades. And we have this very large breadth and depth of, of knowledge of how to perform philanthropy. And how have you seen the role evolve, Adam? I know that both you and Rachel have been involved with PEAK for a very long time. Uh, and when I say PEAK, of course, I mean PEAK grant making, uh, which is a tremendous member organization uh, for those involved in the grants management role. So given your experience and your, uh, your time with that organization, how have you seen this evolve over the last several years? It really has evolved. It continues to evolve. When I first got into grants management over 20 years ago, it was very much a clerical, heavily administrative role. And then uh, a number of things happened externally that gave more meat to the position. So there were things like Sarbanes-Oxley, OFAC, which came out of the Patriot Act and executive orders around the Patriot Act. So the position became a lot more compliance heavy. It gave us more of an importance or a sense of importance in our role. But then what's interesting is that it's been flipped over the years. So then uh, maybe going into the late 2000s, data became more important, uh, looking at systems. It used to be that there was basically a, just a handful of grants management systems, then the landscape blew up. So grants managers became more attuned to IT issues, data, data management, metrics, outcomes. And then what we're seeing now is a shift in how we think about risk, how we think about performing philanthropy. And grants management professionals are the ones with that expertise to be able to help navigate their foundations through these changes so that foundations can achieve the values that they aspire toward in their practices. I would just push back on it's not necessarily the expertise that the grants manager has, but it's the expertise that we're asked to cultivate in order to better manage the database for the needs of the organization. So 
the entire organization has data dependencies and needs and data facilitates storytelling to and for external stakeholders, organizational learning, impact assessment. So data facilitates strategic decision-making across the entire organization and data moves cross-departmentally and across systems. And someone, the stage manager, needs to help facilitate those conversations. And so data management is something that grants managers have been asked to step into simply because of where they sit and whether or not they have the expertise, they're being asked to develop the, the technical tools to assist strategic decision-making across the organization. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. So you mentioned how now grants managers are being asked to start scrutinizing the data, right? And so are you guys seeing this sort of evolution with grants management? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, grants managers really play the largest role in leading innovation at foundations, including looking at how we can incorporate equity in what we do. And the reason why grants managers play this role is because we can actually show how it gets done. So foundations, for example, can talk about equity or innovation or creativity or risk-taking, but without knowing how it can be operationalized, it's just talk. So one of the reasons that I was super excited to have both of you on the podcast is that I love your posts um, on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I really sort of feel like you guys are in a lot of ways leading the sector in terms of innovative thought and originality and really kind of pushing the boundaries of the grants management profession. And so I'd love to hear from you, maybe starting with Rachel, what do you think is the future of the grants application? Well, I think at its heart, the grant application is a proxy for a conversation between the applicant and the financial resources, the donor. And so while there are finite resources for all the needs in the world, nonprofits and the philanthropic spaces need to step up to bridge those gaps. And so both possess needed resources, human capital, financial resources, and the application is an opportunity to determine how to best deploy these resources. So is the application a box checking exercise that needs to change so that there is an actual um, learning opportunity between the two parties? What about you, Adam? How are you envisioning the, the evolution of the grants application? I completely agree with Rachel. When you look to the future, you have to think about the present and the past and why do we do things. And when you look at the application, this is part of the mechanics of philanthropy that has not changed in over a hundred years, where the foundation comes up with the idea, the program, then they put out a call for proposals, then everybody has to stop what they're doing and fight for the same you know, meager amount of money. And so all of these projects around Fix the Form, and I love Fix the Form, I love the people behind it and the intentions behind it, and the things like common grant application, streamlining, it doesn't get to the heart of the matter which is this is still a very extractive process. So as philanthropy talks about becoming more equitable, we have to think about our practices and how that can be disrupted. So when I put on my futurist hat, I, I say nix the form because the future is that there will not be an application. And talking about you know data earlier, if we have a common data, centralized database or a data commons that has all of this information, including funder information, what is stopping us from working within that centralized place and using algorithms and current technology 
to be able to match organizations with each other, funders and nonprofits, without having to be extractive. Just like LinkedIn tells me who I should connect with, why don't we have that in philanthropy? Uh, or, you know, dating apps, you know, like if you think about how we do philanthropy versus like an app that everybody is using and is matching people, for me, it's very strange that we're still uh, working in this way. Not that I have a dating app, I'm happily married. So. <laughs> My wife is listening. I love this matchmaking idea though. And I think on dating apps, we put ourselves out there pretty authentically um, in the hopes of finding a relationship. And the types of relationships vary from, you know, serious looking for marriage to just looking for someone to go out with on Friday night. And so, you know, trust-based philanthropy to accountability driven, like there's lots of different ways to establish a relationship and that's okay. As long as we're clear and transparent and consistent, then we can find better matches. And we honestly and authentically and transparently can communicate our needs and expectations and boundaries. Yeah, it's a great point. And I'm hoping that through trust-based philanthropy, that more authentic conversations are happening between funders and grantees so that grantees have that opportunity to talk about what their real needs are Right. And if you're a nonprofit and you need some level of like technical training or you need to digitize your environment, right? You need laptops, you know, you need software. Like that's not always so easy to directly map how having those things are going to like produce some level of impact that resonates with a grant maker. Yes. I think the issue is being clear about what is available. We just had an example um, where a grantee needed a Zoom subscription, something really simple, small, low cost, and they didn't know that they could include that in their project budget. And so I think that's a really big tripping point is, again, the lines of communication, what kind of relationships are we developing to be able to just articulate what's needed and what we, again, as donor organizations, we have boundaries also. And so there may be certain things that we're not able to do, but can we help point in the direction or connect or um, build networks to, to fill some of those gaps? And I don't think we're doing a great job of that now. Um, Adam, I don't know if you want to jump in there. Yeah, I mean, so I should I should have mentioned this earlier, but uh, my views during this podcast are my own, so I don't want to speak for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which employs me, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I will say, I, th I think I can say that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is certainly making more general operating support grants. I know a lot of our peers are making a lot more general operating support grants as a percentage of their portfolio. But going back to the concept of trust-based philanthropy, for me, it's just very obvious. And I think what seemed so radical a few years ago is just so obvious now. And in time, it won't even be trust-based philanthropy with quote marks. It is just philanthropy. It's how we work. And it's actually interesting to think about why haven't we, why haven't we worked this way before? And you look at the DNA in philanthropy, and the DNA of philanthropy is just based in suspicion. When you look at Andrew Carnegie's foundational uh, essay, The Gospel of Wealth, he makes the case that the wealthy know better how to use philanthropic dollars than the communities that they serve. He almost literally says that word for word. And that was just taken for granted for generations that, yes, let's conflate you know, wealth with wisdom if you have money. That must mean you're really, really smart. And what we're realizing, uh, I mean, it's 
philanthropy is realizing it now, but the people that have been doing this work and the community activists and the movement leaders have known this from the beginning, that they should be trusted to be able to do the work that is driving change. And I've heard some pushback on trust-based philanthropy around, you know, trust has to be earned. And I think that's completely accurate. And, you know, the analogy that comes to my mind is, you know, my neighbors in my community with varying levels of trust and some know, you know, we usually use the back door to enter, right? Like that's just where friends know to, to go and the door is unlocked most of the time, but it takes time to get there. Not everyone in my community knows that that's, that's the approach and that's the process. And it's about building the trust and building the relationship to, to understand what that is and how do we do that in a more inclusive, equitable way. On a transactional level, you want to know the person that you're going to be giving the money to. But from a conceptual level, foundations are the stewards of really what is the public's money. Because some wealthy person decided not to pay taxes, which would have gone toward the the public coffers, ostensibly at least for the public good, and took that money and took it away and put it into a trust or an endowment and then slowly, you know, meets out the money according to that wealthy person's interests. And of course, you know, most of philanthropy was started with wealthy white men. So it's wealthy white men's interests. So, but this is public money. And we created all of these processes to hold on to that money and pull it back and be very, very careful about where it goes. And I think that with these conversations around equity, and risk-taking and rethinking how this money was amassed, accumulated, held, distributed. I, I think it's a real reckoning for philanthropy. And as grants managers, we have to show how it can change. Yeah, very well said, both of you. I'm wondering, like, to, to operationalize that new world, perhaps the role of grant manager evolves again to becoming a role within a grant-making organization that actually goes out and does the research, right? So even taking it a step further to like going out into the community and beginning the relationship building process with uh, the nonprofits that uh, the organization may work with. I definitely see that as an evolution of the program officer role for sure. So especially as power gets shifted and decisions around who gets the grants, that decision-making gets not delegated, but shared or seeded to those communities being impacted, then I think there's going to be this existential crisis within the program officer world around, well, what is it that we should be doing? And I think the answer is relationship building. It's about relationships. And I can see, you know, the grants managers continuing to support the program officers in their research and vetting of organizations. But to bring it really back to this operational role that we hold is grants administration is where the rubber meets the road, the systems, process, and tools that the organization decides to implement have a role in conveying the organization's values. We the grants managers help move these lofty organizational ideas from intent to action. That's why this conversation about alternate and oral reporting is so interesting. There's been a call to center the grantee, shift the burden. How do we actually do that? And it's fallen on the grants managers to figure out what that looks like. So Rachel, speaking of alternate and oral reporting, like this has been one of the most fun projects that that I think has occurred over uh, the course of 2021. And and so I, I think long story short, like 
Um, I think this began with like a post on the Pete Grant making forum, right? There was a, a general discussion around like, hey, what are we doing to reduce the burden of uh, grantees when it comes to progress reporting? And I think you volunteered to uh, to host a conversation and all of a sudden there was like a hundred organizations literally that, that said, yes, I'm in, I, I want to I have this conversation. Tell us a little more about what's happening there. I'm, I'm glad you framed it as fun. I've been having a lot of fun <laughs> with it. I'm sure not many would call reporting process review um, a fun project, but it has been really wonderful and rewarding to facilitate the conversation um, affiliated with peak grant making. And the visual that comes to mind as you were describing the journey, Sam, is, you know, those sinkholes in Florida, you know, they start out small and then all of a sudden they've got like cars and houses falling into them. <laughs> so um, hopefully, you know, a, a shinier, happier vision for what the reporting process will look like, uh, not a giant sinkhole in Florida. But um, that's kind of what happened is that there was so much interest and energy that grew around this, um, this peak post about, you know, who wants to talk about how we can attend to the grantee, the program officer, and the operational needs around reporting. And it's come up on the Center for Effective Philanthropy data resourcing for years that reporting is one of the biggest pain points. It's always rated lowest by the grantee perception surveys. And so to, to grab that low-hanging fruit and bring um, I think we had two sessions, one in August and then another in October, and there were 100 people, um, 100 representatives from I don't know how many different organizations showed up to talk about how to update their reporting process. And it started with asking, why are we collecting these reports, right? It's only for expenditure responsibility grantees that there's a compliance requirement. And so why are we asking all of these from you know, small shops to huge entities to fill out all of these reporting forms for all these different entities that take up to you know eight hours per year per grant for the organization. Rachel, in your conversations, did you get a sense that like the winds are shifting in terms of progress reports? I think this is a space where grants managers can really step up and through all parts of the grant lifecycle query why and start asking across the organization, why are we collecting this data? Is there timeliness? Is there information exchange? Is there relationship building? You know, what's the purpose of this, you know, zombie practice? And can we start to get some challenge to the status quo? And the great secret about philanthropy is that just about everything we do is self-inflicted or self-imposed. There's actually very few rules and regulations governing grant making. And I know we're talking a lot about technology, but this isn't even a technology solution. This is a basic run-of-the-mill business 101 needs assessment and risk assessment. Yeah, I, I think I agree with, with much of what you're both saying there. What do you guys think that, what, is, what does technology need to do to evolve or to change to be capable of supporting philanthropy at some point down the road? Well, the problem with the state of philanthropy tech is that there are no market forces to get it to innovate. Tech companies in our space, uh, well, tech companies in general, look to meet the needs of clients. And for us in philanthropy, those needs have historically been around, you know, checking boxes, compliance, really not innovating or coming up with anything new or disruptive. So there aren't that many people looking to disrupt and create the Uber of philanthropy tech. And I think it's also, it's sort of a chicken or an egg. 
because the technology is waiting to respond to the needs of philanthropy, but philanthropy may not have the imagination to see how those needs can change without technology innovating. I think Adam pinged it with just the word imagination, right? So we really do have a grants management system that's a filing cabinet in a computer with a workflow layered on top, which is wonderful. I mean, it's a great step forward, but it's not nearly enough. I think through technology, we could be doing a better job of demonstrating impact, which would then create um, kind of the carrot to keep doing it. But right now that's that's missing. And I think that's a real loss for the sector. There's also a lot of conversation in our sector about becoming learning organizations. And so I think part of that learning should allow for space, not just for theory of change, strategy refresh, but also thinking about operations and infrastructure projects, which are generally far less glamorous, but just as necessary. And I think just like, you know, nuts and bolts infrastructure projects, the um, plumbing, the electricity, the, you know, city infrastructure that has to be maintained to keep things moving also applies to philanthropy. If we're not attending to what we're doing operationally and investing resources in those things, they're not going to work. And I think we're seeing right now that we are having challenges to um, deploying technology tools in ways that are really useful for the sector or impactful for the sector. Right. Yeah, I think I think what both of you were saying really resonates with me. And, and when I think about the role of technology and software and data, like for me, it's mostly about unlocking creativity. And it feels like with philanthropy in general, like we're at this precipice right now. And now to your point, Adam, you know, will philanthropy respond or will philanthropy continue to go down essentially the same path that it has been going down for the last 25 or 30 years? Well, that's a lot to unpack. I mean, I try to stay positive. Rachel and I joke a lot because uh, Rachel to me is one of the most passionate people in the space and I'm probably one of the most cynical, (laughs) but I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that grants management can certainly play a large role in pushing on technology to be able to meet the emerging needs of philanthropy And we're not talking about virtual reality, metaverse, augmented reality, nanobots, you know, NFTs, you know, crypto, blockchain. We're talking about basic current technology that's been around for 20 years that if we had it in philanthropy, it, it could really manifest the changes that we want to see. I mean, if you think about it, participatory grant making is so difficult for foundations because they don't see how they can easily do it. And to me, that's like, that's the easiest technology I can imagine. You know, there's GoFundMe, which helps individual donors. Why don't we have a GoFundMe for philanthropy? I think there's also an important through line here. As we're talking about technology, there are all kinds of expertise that are needed to move the needle on these conversations and to really see our mission and movement leaders succeed in the social sector. And Alex Dunn, an incredible researcher, is you know, sharing her ideas on technical intuition, really wonderful research to, to dive into. And what she shares is anyone can think like a technologist. Anyone can bring their expertise to these technical tools. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, 
I have felt for, for a long time now that there has been this amazing blurring of the line between technologists and grants management. And I hope that that line continues to blur. I think it's a fantastic way for grants managers to like leverage all of their expertise and at the same time, not have to rely on uh, people with computer science degrees so much. And I will just say that I think everyone should join this conversation and should start thinking along these lines because eventually it may take longer for philanthropy, but eventually technology will create change. And we don't want to be stuck as the travel agents or the yellow cab drivers, you know, that suddenly, you know, didn't see it coming. And suddenly we're wondering, what do we do with our lives now? I think grants managers would benefit from imagining what does impossible look like. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to check out the episode notes to learn more about Rachel and Adam's thought leadership and the organizations they serve. Impact Audio is edited and produced by Jordan Marvin, Laura Steele, and yours truly. Submittable is a cloud-based social impact platform designed to help your team make better decisions and have a bigger impact. We'd love to partner with you to maximize social good and create lasting change. Find out more at submittable.com. And until next time, take good care.